Atamarie, welcome to First Up. It's Ratu, Tuesday the 9th of August, Cornet Truebridge Aho. Coming up, the Commonwealth Games wraps up. We cross to Felicity Reid in Birmingham and we talk with the CEO of Sport NZ, that's Raylene Castle, about the success of the New Zealand team. Will Nationals' Sam Uffendale step down today after revelations he was expelled from his boarding school 22 years ago for his part in a violent assault? The party's deputy leader, Nicola Willis, gives us her take. If I believed that Sam Uffendell was the same man he was as a 16-year-old who did this terrible thing to a young man, then no, I don't think it would be appropriate for him to be a Member of Parliament. Welcome to First Up, I'm Nick Trubridge and for Nathan Lardity we'll cross to the UK now where current Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been accused of missing in action while the country battles a cost of living crisis. Our correspondent Ali J is in London. Morena Ali. Hey, look, uh, let's get to that cost of living crisis. Of course, it's affecting, um, well, it's affecting uh, all countries across the world, but of, of course, the good folk in the UK as well. Uh, it's Causes are, are sort of the same as here, aren't they? And, and uh, sort of include Brexit as well, I suppose. You're absolutely right. And it is, I mean, it's across the world and it has been this ongoing conversation here for months, but it feels like in the past week or so, we've really seen this kind of ramp up in these conversations about it. So here, the main thing people are talking about is the price of fuel, the cost of energy bills for households has gone up, the cost of food has gone up. Um, The Bank of England have recently uh, announced that inflation is going to be the highest it's been for years and a rise in interest rates as well. So the fuel and food, as you're saying, that's mostly because of the war in Ukraine. Um, The price of oil and gas is set internationally. And earlier this year in the UK, a cap on fuel bills was raised for households in the UK. And in a couple of months, they've said it's going to go up again. So all over the country, we're hearing these stories of people whose bills aren't just doubling, they're trebling. And for some, towards the end of the year and the beginning of next year, these costs are going to go up again. So the government have put in place a couple of extra measures. They've given sort of around £650 to um, people to try and help. But at the moment, as we're looking at the end of summer going into winter, some people are saying uh, their bills have gone up over £1,000. This mm. money isn't going to help and the government aren't really doing anything about it. So it's it's peaked whilst we wait for this leadership uh, race to take place. It's peaked at the moment in saying Mm. what's happening now. Um, And Gordon Brown, who's the former Labour Prime Minister, he's come out in the past couple of days with this research that shows that some UK households energy bills could hit as high as £4,000 a year. And families in the UK are facing they're saying it's up to £1,600 worse off at the moment. Um, And he's going pretty hard on the government too. Yeah, Boris is still there at the moment, isn't he, of course, but he's on his way out. What what has he come out and said about all of this and what is the government that he currently still controls doing about it? Well, at the moment, that's what's happened today. So in the papers today, in the news, they're talking about this fact that Boris Johnson has basically been MIA. He had he had his wedding a week or so ago. Um, we saw videos of them dancing in a tent in the Priorities. countryside somewhere. Yeah, um, right. Exactly. And then he's gone on honeymoon. So he's been okay. um, he's been on holiday in Slovenia and he's come back now and his spokesperson has come out and said that um, he's saying this isn't something he can do anything about. It's a job for the next 
next prime minister, the next leader of the Conservative Party, so he's not going to address it. And just today, Downing Street has also rejected these calls um, to summon an emergency COBRA meeting. So COBRA being the body that meets Mm -hmm. in crisis situations. And so people are basically saying, where is he? What's happening? We can't wait for the next prime minister to come in. People are really in this terrible crisis at the moment and the government aren't really doing anything. Yeah, something that doesn't wait for a, well, doesn't wait for a leadership race to be over and certainly doesn't wait for someone's uh, honeymoon to be up in Slovenia or wherever it was. Um, In the meantime, on that leadership race, what is the latest on it? Uh, Who's in the most commanding position? So at the moment, I mean, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen that it's Liz Truss who really is um, stepping out in front of this leadership race. At the moment, the latest is yet more debates. So they put out um, these these voting ballots they put out as well, and they won't come back in. We won't find out what's going to happen for another couple of weeks. But in the past week, Rishi Sunak, a video came out of him in uh, a borough in Tunbridge Wells saying uh, to, a, to a group of conservatives that he'd taken money away from deprived, deprived urban areas to give to places like this, is what he said. Um, and that was in the New Statesman. And it went viral because it kind of confirmed this belief that here he was saying, um, I, I'm going to give money to these places that are already quite wealthy. I mean, he had to come out and say, that's not what I was saying. This is what I was saying. But it, I mean, it was a hugely damaging thing. And it really did um, take up a lot of the news cycle for a couple of days. Liz Truss as well had to make a big U-turn about um, saying she'd save money by cutting public sector pay for those outside of London as well. That was very unpopular. And she's gone back on it now as well. So new policies at the moment, left, right and centre. Every day there's something else. Every day there's another interview um, with on a different channel. There's more debates to come. And I think it really does feel today that people are going, we don't want more debates. We don't want more of this. We want actual answers and some actual action from mm. the government. Yeah, struggles for both while people actually, you know, citizens actually struggle themselves as well, aren't they? Hey, um, thanks, Ellie. That is Ellie J there live from London this morning. All right, it is uh, 12 minutes past 5, 5.12, and you're listening to First Up on RNZ National with Nick Trubridge and for Nathan Vardy. Uh We're keen for your feedback. It's sort of the story that, uh, well, everyone on social media at least is talking about at the moment. Sam Uffendell, should he resign from Parliament over that affair uh, where, of course, he, well, call it hazing, maybe it's a little bit more intense than that, effectively beat up a kid while he was at school and uh, only apologised about it last year, as it turns out. You can text us on that, 2101. You can tweet us at firstuprnz or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at firstuprnz. In Japan, we're going to Japan. The public is not very pleased with the government's decision to hold a state funeral for the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was a powerful member of the Liberal Democratic Party, or LDP. But it's not all doom and gloom, because the saga of the Yamaguchi man who ran with his town's COVID relief money has come to a surprisingly happy end. We've heard a little bit about this saga on First Up. We got the latest from our correspondent, Chris Gilbert. Yeah, so yesterday, uh, August 
8th actually marked one month since uh, Abe, the former prime minister of Japan, was shot and killed in Nara Prefecture, and uh, a few weeks since uh, Kishida, the current prime minister, announced a state funeral for him, which are, again, extremely rare in Japan. They've only been held on one previous occasion, and there's been a lot of criticism about the idea since, either because, of, I guess, the, the cynical politics of it, that uh, you know Abe was still an extremely powerful member of the LDP, and that the LDP political and policy pathway is, you know, Abe's road, effectively, and they're still following it. And I think that a, a state funeral, and I think, you know, the media has covered this as well, is very much, you know, just a, effectively a propaganda event for the LDP, but also because, you know, the media in Japan is uh, almost as precious as the media in New Zealand about taxpayer money. And uh, they're, they're very critical of the use of taxpayer money to hold a state funeral. But now a new poll says that uh, 45% of households in Japan disapprove of the funeral. Inside the LDP too, you know, a third of them are not in favor of the, uh, of the state funeral. And I would assume that all of those are outside the Abe faction, you know, people who, who did not belong uh, to the, the faction that's loyal to Shinzo Abe. And at the moment, there was a news story just this morning, Nick, saying that uh, the, a lot of conservative lawmakers inside the LDP are drifting, is the word that was used, without the leadership of Abe there. So it goes to show that even though he was the former prime minister, not the current prime minister, he, he still had a lot of clout inside the LDP. And of course, you know, the Constitutional Democrats, the opposition, 84% of them oppose of a state funeral as well. Also, recently, the shooter, Abe shooter, his motive has been reported as uh, believing that Abe had a connection with the Unification Church, a church from South Korea, and that has been very much under the microscope here in the media in the last month as well. And uh, now 77% of uh, people, of households, want the LDP and all politicians to cut any ties with the Unification Church. Yeah, what a saga. Wow. Um, to a slightly different saga of the Yamaguchi man who ran um, with his town's COVID relief money. That's come to a, a, a surprisingly happy end. Fill us in on what, what that's all about first and then fill us on uh, in on rather the um, the resolution, I suppose you'd call it. Yeah, yeah, Nick, it's been an ongoing saga on first up as well, mate. I, I can't stop talking about it. I bring it up once or, you know, once a month at least. I, I, but like it back it, it did April, ring a bell. It did ring a bell, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah back, back in April, um, in the town of Abu uh, in Yamaguchi, population 3,372, 463 households did not get their 100,000 yen, that's about 1,000 New Zealand dollar, dollars, uh, COVID relief money because uh, due to a, uh, an error, a formatting error of a spreadsheet, a floppy disk was involved. It's all very messy. It all went Old to school. one lucky winner, one, yeah, exactly, one bank account. It was about 750,000 New Zealand dollars in the end that all went to one person. The recipient of that money promised he wouldn't run and then he ran. It turns out he immediately spent most of it on online casinos, <laughs> uh, which are kind of below board here in Japan. Yeah. They're not exactly legal. The police eventually got him on a fraudulent use of a computer charge. And then, since then, a very skillful lawyer went after the payment companies that he kind of sent the money to to pay for his online casinos and got them to refund all the money back to the town, suggesting, wink, wink, that the government could look into their books. So all of that money went back. Now, Shotaguchi is the man's name, the recipient. He has been released on bail. On August 1st, he bowed very apologetically to the press waiting outside of jail, 
and he promised to pay back whatever was still owed bit by bit. But you might be wondering, first of all, who could afford his bail? And secondly, what job could such a now distributable figure possibly get? This is when we talk about Hikaru. <laughs> right. You know, the story is... This story is, is just it, it, it's it got legs. Turns every it's got week. legs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It keeps on running too. Hikaru is a is a self made millionaire YouTuber in Gen Z Robin Hood. A little bit about him. He used to work at a factory and uh, he quit because of power harassment from his employer, or as I say in Japan, Pawahara. And so then he went into, I guess, uh, informational sales is what I guess one of the, the terms is, where it's kind of a scam where you promise people that can become millionaires by selling them a secret. And he earned a lot of money doing that, but then he found it very ethically challenging, so he quit and became a YouTuber, but he kind of now goes around exposing fraudulent businesses and stuff in a very David Ferrier kind of way, but you know, in a very in a very nice kind of way as well. But he apparently saw the good in Taguchi, uh, the man who stole the town's money. He bailed him out and feels like, oh, he must have just seen the, uh, you know, made some bad life decisions and has offered him a job in his like huge, small YouTube empire. He's, he set him up with a Twitter account. He has very cute tweets mostly of Taguchi learning how to use Microsoft Word. And uh, he's, doing, he's training him in business etiquette. And it seems like he's effectively training him and, and making him, you know, like – uh, like highly skilled, like a highly skilled worker from a guy that would steal a town's COVID relief money and blow it on, on the casinos to, you know, come an up and comer in a budding YouTube empire. So, you know, in the town of Abu Yamaguchi, all's well that ends well, but let's never talk about it again. <laughs> Did you catch all of that? If not, it'll be on the podcast, which you can download after the show. That's Chris Gilbert in Japan. It is 19 minutes past five. I'm Nick Trubridge, and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, the mayor of Waihe says it's taken longer than an elephant to gestate, but his town is finally getting a new library after 12 years of talking about it. We speak to our local democracy reporter, Alicia Evans, about that story and more. And the latest Kantar One News poll shows National and Act could form a government. But will the Sam Uffindell affair derail that? National Party Deputy Lead, uh, National Party Deputy Leader Nicola Willis will join us on that. We head to Tauranga now, where local democracy reporter Alicia Evans is joining us. Morena, Alicia. Morena. Let's start at Papamoa School because there's a bit of controversy there, isn't there, uh, regarding well, off, this often causes controversy outside of school, doesn't it? Uh, the removal of speed bumps. What are parents saying about this uh, and why were they removed in the first place? Yes, so it's outside um, Tamanua or Papamao School. And um, so the speed bumps were replaced with a crossing, but the principals actually said that the speed bumps slowed traffic a bit better. So the crossing's great because they can get the crossing guards out, but throughout the rest of the day, people are just speeding through this crossing and he's really worried that a child might be killed by a speeding car. What are the costs? Uh, the cost, so I think it was about $8,000 to put in the speed bumps and then they spent another 7000 changing it to a crossing. And then a more <laughs> permanent solution's going in in October. So quite a bit of money spent. Yeah, yeah, t- totally. Uh, hey, let's move to Waihe, uh, because this is sort of the story that, uh, if, well, that everyone in Waihe's talking about, really. Uh, a library, at long last, they're getting a library. But why has it taken so long? We're talking over a decade, 12 years in total. 
Yeah, so I think it's just been um, sort of on the cards. I've talked about a lot. They did a review of their libraries a few years back and some other places got some first, but part of it was they couldn't really decide on a site either. So it was a case of like they did a few case studies on a couple of different sites and they finally decided on this one in front of the community centre. So I think everyone's really happy about it. But yeah, it is quite a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing happens. What, what, what have we got so far? We've got speed bumps put in, then removed, and we've got a library. It all takes a long time. It all costs a lot of money in local government, doesn't it? Uh, right. Uh, well, back to Tauranga, because there's a new policy that wants uh, different limits and times on alcohol stores. This is an issue, uh, obviously, in Tauranga, but it's really an issue everywhere in the country, isn't it? Particularly in, in areas where, um, you know, alcohol is a problem. Yeah, definitely. So they're talking about um, changing the opening times of liquor stores and outlets that sell alcohol to 10am from 7am. So this, um, it obviously impacts supermarkets quite a bit because they open at 7. Liquor stores open a little bit later, sort of 19, so maybe not going to affect them as much. But um, an alcohol ex- like harm advocate wants the closing times reduced as well. So he's sort of saying that 9pm would be a better closing time. That's after 9pm is when a lot of that problem drinking occurs. So he's happy that they're making the um, starting time a little bit later. But yeah, he'd really like to see a little bit more action and see that closing time reduced as well. Uh, Much chat down there. Obviously, Sam Uffendell is is the story of the day. Is that causing a bit of a murmur down your way, I would imagine, on the the streets of Tauranga? Yeah, I think so. Um, Interesting that it's all sort of come out. But, um, yeah, obviously people are chatting about it. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. It was a long time ago, but also, yeah, not not great. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, good, good way of putting it. Um, hey, thanks, Alicia. That is Alicia Evans from the Local Democracy Programme joining us from Tauranga. Right, joining us now from the business desk is Anan Zaki. Uh, morena, Anan. Morena, Nick. Tell us what the team's focusing on this morning. I've got something about, uh, well, jeez, oh, house prices continuing Favourite to fall. Topic. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, well, look, this year has all been about the retreating uh, housing market, uh, and now we've seen the average uh, house prices fall below the symbolic million-dollar mark for the first time since September. Uh, still very high. Quotable value says uh, the national average fallen just uh, just a shade under 5% over the past three months to uh, just under $990,000. Still outrageously high. Uh, And and the warning here from QV is that the market correction could become a crash, uh, but there will need to be a large number of mortgagee sales for that to happen. But look, at this stage, uh, unemployment is still at uh, 3.3%, and that's supporting wage growth, which means the market's still being held up. So unless there's a dramatic change in unemployment, uh, QV says there's, uh, you know, even with higher interest rates, a market crash is pretty unlikely. Now, uh, looking at some regions, uh, Auckland's, Average value is down 5.5% over the past three months, but still sitting at $1.4 million. Uh, Wellington region's 
uh, down about 9% to 960,000. And Christchurch, um, which recently has been the exception, it's also down uh, 4.3%, sitting at uh, 774,000. Still uh, a big gap between Christchurch and the rest of the country. Now, QVC's uh, how we track over the next three months. Uh, Now, that'll largely depend on the Reserve Bank's interest rate decision later this month. So we've seen about four four consecutive 50 basis point increases since February, and they are tipped to continue that uh, aggressive path with inflation still uh, not showing any sign of slowing down. Switching slightly to airlines, uh, Qantas, some changes there, desperate measures at Qantas. Tell us about that. Uh, Yeah, well, look, they've... uh, asked senior executives to work as baggage handlers uh, for three months uh, as they t- try to good. tackle the... <laughs> well, that, that's great. That, that's, that's, Some that honest work. Be. You know, we, our, the, the CEO of our national airline, you see him walking down the aisles offering lollies well, sometimes. Exactly, right? It's, uh, look, honest work, right? Uh, get off the, you know, get, get off behind the computer screen onto totally. the floor of the baggage terminal uh, look, the company's uh, looking for at least uh, 100 volunteers to work at Sydney and Melbourne airports. And look, tasks uh, like loading and unloading bags, uh, as well as driving the vehicles to move luggage around airports. And, you know, much like uh, much of the global airline industry, Qantas uh, is struggling to resume services. But uh, Qantas, they seem to be copying a lot of public criticism, more so than others. And part of that is because... In 2020, they outsourced uh, more than 2,000 ground staff roles on top of thousands more job cuts. Uh, And uh, last month, the airline actually had to apologise after passengers complained of delays and missing luggage after after sacking those uh, ground staff roles and outsourcing them. Um, And look, Mm. I think a few New Zealand companies have done this as well with the office staff being asked to work on the factory floor. Teagle, Sea Lord come to mind being asked to muck in yeah which isn't a bad thing but obviously uh the request has come because they're struggling which is not great obviously hey thanks anand appreciate it uh you can hear more from the business team on morning report at 10 to 7 and while we're on business let's go to the markets uh your new zealand dollar will buy today 62.85 us cents 90.11 australian cents 61.71 euro cents 51.95 british pence 4.24 yuan, 84.68 Japanese yen, this is a stitch up, and 1,985.01 Mongolian Tugriks, Tugriks, I don't know, that's a stitch up, thanks guys, they're laughing uh, in the studio, but one thing I do know about is New Zealand has won 20 gold medals at the Commonwealth Games. That is a history-making mark from the New Zealand team. So I spoke to Sport New Zealand Chief Executive Raylene Castle, and I wanted to start with her highlights of the Commonwealth Games. There are a few. The highlights have been, as always, our young athletes uh, do a great job on the field of play, but off the field of play they've just been fantastic in the way they've been ambassadors for New Zealand, and I think that's incredibly special, always makes me feel really proud, and I think New Zealanders should be really proud. Birmingham have done a great job of the Games, volunteers have been amazing, really friendly, and I think that's a special experience. But some of the medals, I've you know, been fortunate to probably see, I don't know, 20 medals and, you know, in their own way, they're all really special. So um, it would be really hard to single any individual out. 
Totally. Uh, obviously, some really good results, but also some mixed results. Uh, disappointing. Well, the netballers still got a bronze, didn't they, as did, as did the Rugby Sevens teams, but perhaps didn't reach their absolute goals. On the flip side, you know, incredible stuff from the swimmers, from squash, from athletics, from cycling. Do you, in your role, look at this, and does reallocation of funding come to mind? Is it something you look at after an event like this? Uh, no, we don't. The funding is uh, fixed through to the end of Paris, so any of the high-performance funding allocation is done on a four-year cycle. This time it's a three-year cycle because of Tokyo being 12 months late. But from any sports where Commonwealth Games is a, is a priority event, then that's taken into consideration um, when we do a next round of funding, which will be post-Paris Olympics. So you basically look... Do you look at them in unison, though? You look at Com Games and then you look through to Paris and the results there and then you might make some decisions? Yeah, that's right. And it's not just results-based. I think um, that's the thing that's, yes, there's no doubt consistent performance is really important, but it's also about the future, what athletes they've got coming, where their focus has been, and what you might be able to look at from a performance expectation in another four-year cycle. In terms of results, though, I know it's not all about that, but um, can we sort of put something like a Commonwealth Games gold medal into perspective? I mean, how much... What does it mean, I suppose, for an athlete or for a sport in terms of funding, in terms of uh, sponsorship, not to mention, obviously, the glory and the result itself? Yeah, I mean, Commonwealth Games is is an important event uh, for New Zealand, either because some sports like bowls and netball, for example, they are Commonwealth sports and not really many other countries actually play bowls um, and netball outside of those countries. So you know that you're playing against the best of the best. So, you know, that's a really great measure to how you're performing. For some of the other sports, there's a a big portion of the world, as you said, um, aren't here. So they'll be looking at times, they'll be looking at you know how they performed, particularly in those sports where you can you know use time as a measurement. But you know it's also a great opportunity to see how young people stand up under a pressure situation, and the crowds here have been enormous, and that's a really good measure of you know understanding what it feels like when you've got full stadia and you have to perform in those environments. Have you been over? Yes, I've been here the whole time. You've been there the whole time. Right. So you've been there the whole time. Tell us about the vibe. Tell us about uh, some of the things that are going to stick in your mind for the sort of foreseeable future in terms of results, in terms of team results. Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, I've been very fortunate to be part of some really special events. I think, you know, Paul Cole's five set win um, where he was, you know, was just the most brutal game of squash I've ever seen and, and he just fought to all the absolute bitter end. You know, that was incredible. The beach volleyball ballers equally didn't win a medal, the, the women's pair, but some amazing scenes, a sand pit built in the middle of the CBD here and um, in Birmingham and, you know, sand everywhere and crowd having a great time and people dancing and enjoying themselves. So, you know, Birmingham have done a great job of putting on this game. They've made um, everyone feel incredibly welcome. Um, the city's really embraced it and it's, it's really a model for how Commonwealth Games can be run in the future. There's always that sort of discussion with the Com Games, isn't there, that they don't mean much in the grand scheme of things because, you know, as the yarn goes, there's no United States, there's no China, a lot of the European countries are missing. But, look, we are still fourth on the medal table overall, which is obviously an amazing achievement. So I guess the question is, how do you think we best sort of support our success stories so they then go on to maybe do great things in the Olympics next year? Yeah, and a really good example there is Aaron Gate, you know, four gold medals. I mean, that's a record for New Zealand and New Zealand team, and he's been absolutely extraordinary against some, you know, genuinely world-class 
competition in the cycling event. So that's what it's all about. It's about you've got to firstly beat what's in front of you. You can't do anything other than that. And then they'll be looking very much at times um, and how they've performed versus what's happening in the rest of the in, in the rest of the world. Obviously, there's there is well certainly a level of expectation. I, I imagine from your own organisation, not to mention the New Zealand public, that the sort of you, you know the the bigger sports and the more resource sports do well. But it must also be pretty cool for you seeing I don't know sports like judo just sort of come out of outside of the consciousness of our minds and uh, and get what three medals I think it is yeah and that's what's so special about the Commonwealth Games is you know for and the Olympics really for two weeks every two years you get a chance to engage with sports that you possibly wouldn't ever you know have an opportunity to watch and I think that's what makes it for New Zealanders to understand that there's young athletes who are training really hard working really hard to live their dreams and when they come to an event like this and end up with a medal around their neck that's um, something they'll never forget and and for many of us who get to watch it, um, something we'll never forget either. Have you managed to have a yarn to, to Aaron Gate? I haven't actually. Um, I was at the track on day one when he, when he won um, his first couple of medals. But, you know, they're in the middle of competition and then the road race was a really long way away. So um, I haven't. But, yeah, just an incredible exhibition of power, speed and tactical riding, really, to win the road race from that situation. It's sort of a bizarre that you, you ride 160 kilometres and then you end up with a sprint over the last 400 metres. So, um, yeah, but uh, he, he did an absolutely amazing job and he's got to be incredibly proud of his performance at this game. Sport New Zealand CEO Raylene Castle there and with me now from Birmingham is the co-captain of the RNZ reporting team, Felicity Reid. Morena, Felicity. Morena, Nick. Um, let's, can you bring us up to speed? Uh, any more medals on the last day of competition to add to our, well, already very healthy looking haul? Yes, it was gold to end the Games today and bring up, as you mentioned, that 20th golden gong. We did just miss out on that magic, like, 50 medals overall, Mark. We've ended up with 49. But today's last medal came in the women's squash doubles with Joelle King and Amanda Landers-Murphy teaming up to take on the English duo of Sarah-Jane Seary and Alison Waters. They managed to defend the gold that they won four years ago, and it was an 11-8-11-8 victory for New Zealand. And, you know, and you and the listeners might remember that Alison Waters was part of that pairing that Joelle King and Paul Cole defeated yesterday in the mixed doubles. And Sarah Jane Perry, who's actually a local to these parts, who had quite a bit of hometown support behind her, she was the one that beat King in the bronze medal match. So she's in the singles. So that just was a little bit of an upset in the singles. But I guess King and Landers Murphy got one back in the women's doubles today. And this much as this was a great result for King, it's a bit of a comeback story for Landis Murphy as well. She actually like hung up the record, as to say, from this level of competition after the last Commonwealth Games. And Joelle sort of had to nudge her and say, you know, would you come back and help me defend the title? Which, obviously, they did. And Joelle, who's had a bit of a tough game, as I've probably mentioned a couple of times, she was very thankful to the role that Amanda's played with her over the last week and the comfort that she's been able to provide her off the court as well. Uh, King has spoken a number of times about how tough the last week was uh, on her and she hasn't, she had a heavy schedule here. Like it was the singles, the mixed doubles and the women's doubles, but she has said it's taken a physical toll on her, but she's actually been quite cagey when we've asked her about what's actually been wrong and whether it's a pre-existing injury or something else but 
maybe that'll come out in the days to come as the wash-up of the James happens. But that's a good way for Joelle to wrap up the games, which he was a flag bearer in, in the opening ceremony. Yeah, and on the flag bearer, uh, the, the, the golden man of the games, I guess, the success story of the games, a guy who, uh, you know, has had to battle back from uh, from a bad crash, which we've mentioned a number of times on the show at the Olympics, uh, Aaron Gates, the flag bearer. Has he, have you, has anyone had a chat to him? Uh, how's he feeling? And when is the closing ceremony beginning? Yeah, were you surprised that that was Aaron Gates? <laughs> You'd think the guy well, was the... Four gold medals is the show in for this type of thing. An obvious um, choice, yeah. Well, you'd think so, but it's actually the interesting part of that was that, um, speaking to him today, he was actually asked when he only had three gold medals. So that was only three. (laughs) After the road time trial, he was actually approached by a chef commission, Nigel Avery, to ask, you know, would he be interested in taking the closing ceremony flag bearer role? I think that was the New Zealand officials getting in a bit early there and making sure that he didn't sort of run off or have too many celebrations after the game. But then he'd been asked to agree and then just took on another gold medal. So it makes their decision look even better than it would have been to start with. Oh, sorry, Felicity. I was just going to ask, just, just, just finishing up about 30 seconds. Give us some of your uh, some of your best moments. We've discussed Aaron Gate, which is obviously a pretty phenomenal effort. What else sticks out in your mind? I think at these games, I was listening to Raylene a little bit earlier, and sometimes it's the athletes that are the unexpected ones, or the ones that maybe, you know, there are a lot of athletes here who are top in their uh, sport or would be top in their sport without some of the other countries that aren't in the Commonwealth Games. But it, for me, it's been those athletes that maybe were like, the surprise, like para-athlete Josh Wilmer, the excitement and the jumping into the opposite lane of the pool when he won a medal. I mean, it's those types of things that maybe you miss it, say, in Olympic Games, but at a Commonwealth Games, this is what really comes out. It's all of the athletes speaking about how much support that they get from each other. And some of these athletes compete in individual sports and don't really get the opportunity to come together as a team, which they have here. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, pretty cool stuff. Thanks, Felicity. Uh, Felicity Reid there from Birmingham. Safe travels home. Uh, We will see you when you get back. Right, it is 18 minutes to six. I'm Nick Trubridge and for Nathan Dardity. You're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, National's newest MP, Sam Uffendale, reveals he was expelled from Auckland's King College for a violent assault against a younger student 23 years ago. He's set to discuss his future with members of his party in Wellington today. National's Deputy Nicola Willis will join us on that. <laughs> of the professionals of Morning Reporter up after six. Uh, for a quick preview of the flagship new program, Brian Espin is here. Uh, what's on the agenda? Kia ora. Well, we'll have all the latest from the Commonwealth Games, obviously, in the closing ceremony. We're also going to speak to Grant Robertson, the Minister for Sport, about sports funding and about the possibility of New Zealand hosting a Commonwealth Games in the future. There's a lot of politics on the program this morning, as you might, <laughs> Funny be, that. Uh, might expect. Yeah. Uh, we had that TVNZ poll last night. It was pretty interesting. Mm. Um, Peter was just mentioning it in the news that National and Act would be able to form a government on those numbers. We're going to have a 
poll, uh, panel discussion on, on that poll. And of course, Sam Uffendel, um, people just learning to how, how to pronounce his name and, yeah. and, and learning that is the first thing about him. It's a, it's, a gonna, it's a pretty devastating thing for his career, obviously. We're going to speak to him. He's coming on the programme live this morning. His career, you'd have to say, is really hanging in the balance. He says he's going to discuss that with uh, his colleagues this morning. So it'll be fascinating to hear what his thoughts are reflecting on, on this uh, scandal, which is, I guess, you know, only less than 24 hours old, really. Yeah, and a great poll result, which they'd probably rather be talking about, right? Well, exactly. And, I mean, this has been the thing for Luxon recently, hasn't it? Mm. I mean, he's been um, taking two or three steps forward, and then he's having these setbacks. So you'd have to think that his patience wouldn't be extremely high. What we don't know is what he knew at the time, what was disclosed, because it's not the first time National has been through this kind of issue with some skeletons rattling out of the closet. So that whole thing about culture or disclosure, the board processes and all that, that, Mm. that's all to come out still. But firstly, uh, we're going to hear from him. He is fronting up 7.30 this morning on Morning Report. Yeah, don't miss it. Hey, uh, thanks, Guy. Morning Report coming up in a little over, a little under 15 minutes, rather. Uh, Right, well, on Sam Uffendell, the latest poll results, let's get to them first. They show public support uh, is increasing for the ACT Party, and that means it could work with National to form a government at the next election. Of course, the opposition uh, seems pleased with these results, but that is not the only reason the National Party has been in the news over the last 24 hours. As Guyan just mentioned, Tauranga MP Sam Uffendell has admitted he was kicked out of his boarding school as a teenager for beating a younger student. So I spoke to National Deputy Leader Nicola Willis and started by, and started by addressing the elephant in the room. Look, obviously this was a very serious incident and uh, my thoughts are with the victim for whom I'm sure this would have been a deeply or traumatic event at the time and I'm sure it's something that would never leave you. If I thought that Sam was still the same man as he was when he was a 16-year-old who committed this act, then I don't think there would be a place for him in Parliament. However, I see that he is extremely sincere in his regret and his genuine apology and that he is being upfront about what occurred and that he is a different person today than when this happened. So Um, are you saying, sorry to interrupt, are you saying he will stay on? Well, I think that there has to be room in Parliament for people who have made serious errors, accounted for them and who are now committed to using their position for good. When did you find out about this and when did Chris Luxon find out about this? Just after lunchtime and I believe Chris Luxon found out around the same time. So it's news to you like it is to the rest of us. Do you think it, it should have been passed on to you earlier? Would you have uh, liked it to have been passed on to you earlier? Look, ultimately what's occurred here is Sam has disclosed this incident to the party at the time of his selection, a pre-selection panel which is made up of a combination of local and national level National Party representatives has made the judgment that him having accounted for these actions and the fact that he was 16 at the time has been apologetic and has been a very different person subsequently meant that he should not be precluded from standing for Parliament. That's a party matter, that's their judgment and where I stand on this today is that I have advised Sam, that what he should do now is be completely upfront with New Zealanders about this, because ultimately, 
it is the people of New Zealand and the people of the of Tauranga who will be the judges on this. Is this a case though of the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing? You are the deputy leader, obviously. Chris Luxon is leader. This has come across your desk lunchtime when it was disclosed to the party some time ago. Yes, obviously the party made a decision not to disclose that information to us and that is something that they have made a judgment on and obviously something that we will find out more about in the next few uh, hours and days. Would you have selected Sam Uffindell if you were on that panel? I wasn't on that panel, so it's a hypothetical. But just, just yeah, I, I realise that, but and it is a hypothetical, but it is a question of, I guess, your judge of someone's character. So would you have selected him if you were on that panel? Look, my judge of it is this. If I believed that Sam Uffindell was the same man he was as a 16-year-old who did this terrible thing to a young man, then no, I don't think it would be appropriate for him to be a Member of Parliament. However, it is clear that he is not that same person today, that he is deeply regretful about the incident, that he has sincerely apologised for it, that he has changed. So do you believe this is uh, simply a case of, well, I guess you could call it schoolyard, school dorm hazing, something that unfortunately a lot of us have probably come into contact with over our younger years, uh, or is this something more serious in your view? Well, I see it as a very serious incident. Uh, as I said, my thoughts are with the victim. But not, but, sorry, Ms. Sorry, Ms. Willis, but, but, not, but not serious enough, obviously, that you think he needs to, to go in this case. I'm conscious here that we are talking about very serious behaviour by a 16-year-old. And as a teenager, many of us will have made serious mistakes. And I'm conscious that in this case, Sam has been very sincere in changing himself and taking accountability for his actions. I'm a mother of a 12-year-old boy. The idea of my son being subjected to, to bullying of this nature is deeply upsetting. And as I said, my thoughts are with the victim. I think that there is an opportunity for all of us to think about how we can ensure that we use our positions in Parliament to say no to this sort of thing and to be leaders who condemn it. And I fully expect that Sam will join me in that condemnation. You've had a good, a really good poll result that's just come out, uh, showing basically that you and ACT could govern together. Are you concerned, though, that incidents like the one we're discussing right now are going to distract you from what would appear to be a very winnable election for the National Party? Well, we won't be distracted by these issues because our focus has to be on New Zealanders. But they are, uh, sorry Ms Willis, but they are constantly talked about, aren't they? The, the time and time again you've just had a conference yesterday the discussion should be on policy but you've had another personal incident with one of your MPs come up that that must be frustrating Nick I would much prefer to be talking with you about our welfare that works policy and about how we address the cost of living that's true well let's touch on that policy then you mentioned sanctions as part of that policy what are those going to be well at the moment uh, the government has a range of sanctions at its disposal for dealing with people who don't pull their part of the bargain when it comes to being work-ready and job-available. They include reducing the amount of benefit uh, that they get. Our proposal is that we actually do use those sanctions more readily, but only once people have been offered full support. What uh, research have you put into 
well, the use of sanctions and whether or not they work when you've formulated this policy? Well, what we've done is looked at the data, and what that shows is that while the number of people on a benefit for long periods of time has increased under Labor in this age group, the use of sanctions has declined. And what we can see on the graph, and we released it with our policy documents, is that as the sanctions have declined, the number of people staying on a benefit for longer has increased. It's quite striking, that data. Job coaches, uh, they've been mentioned as well. Where are you going to find them? In our communities, we are blessed in this country with some extraordinary non-government organisations, charitable trusts iwi organisations, chambers of commerce, who already do some pretty great work with young people. We want to power that up and we want to allow them to work with more of these young people and support them, not only into fulfilling their own potential, but contributing to their communities. Because we think if you're someone working with a young person and they're actually part of your neighbourhood and your town, you are very invested and getting the best out of them. So we're quite excited about the possibilities. So so how many young people, well, as of right now, you've got the numbers, are we talking about that would be uh, encapsulated by this by this program, by this policy, by this idea? Uh, well, what we've proposed is that it should be phased in because we are realistic that there will be a need for NGOs to gear up over time. So we're proposing in the first year of the policy around 2,000 young people would be helped and that that would lift to around 8,000 a year by the fourth year of the programme. So 2,000, how are they going to be aligned with these job coaches? Uh, One-to-one? Well, our proposal is that a job coach would have several young people that they were working with, possibly around 20. And the idea is that they would be readily checking in with that young person making sure that they were attending the appointments that they may be needing to as part of their plan to be work-ready, whether that's driver's licence, literacy training, counselling sessions, whatever it is. The job coaches would be working intensively with them, checking in with them, making sure that they're turning up to job interviews, debriefing with them, that sort of thing. So 2,000, groups of 20, you said, didn't you? So 2,000, so, so 100 job coaches is... In the interim, what you would be after? Look, around that, but we're conscious that how this has to work is that we need to engage the community organisations and have them tell us how they want to design these programmes. Uh, And there may be different models, and we want to be flexible about that. What we've seen with the Ministry for Social Development is it does have a record of failure, and sometimes the feedback we get is that's because there's such a focus on box ticking and minutiae and contracts that they don't actually drive for what we want, which is the outcome, which is young people in work, staying in work. There's obviously already a, a worker shortage in this country. Uh, you only have to read, I don't know, the front page of the Herald, the front page of stuff, wherever you get your news to know that. But you're confident you can find these job coaches out there. You're confident you're going to be able to offer a package, I suppose, that is uh, attractive to them and the sort of work that they are going to want to take part in. Yes. The point you make is exactly the right one. If it's not the time now, in a time of record job vacancies, to help unemployed young people into work, then when is it? And I'm confident that we will actually have people in a voluntary capacity, but also people in a professional capacity want to be part of this purposeful, meaningful work. Uh, I actually heard someone call in to talk radio today to say, look, this might actually be something that retirees 
would be prepared to go back into the workforce for because it's such important work. Salaries, how much would you pay them? Well, that will depend uh, on what the community organisation wishes to pay them. National Party leader uh, Nicola Willis, Deputy Leader Nicola Willis there uh, talking about Sam Uffendell, of course. A little bit of feedback before we go on Sam Uffendell. Uh, one person says the apology was pretty late, 20 years late but accepted. I think it should have stayed private but the National Party chose the wrong candidate knowing the background. Uh, and anonymous, Sam should resign. Clearly a values and attitude issue there. He is finished. No role, role model. This person says... Hey, Morning Report's up next with Guyon and Corin. They will have Mr Uffendell himself on the show. That's it from us. We'll see you a pop tomorrow.